0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA.
0: Here's your host,
1: Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Federal employees are mostly sideline observers of the congressional budget deliberations, and yet you have the greatest interest in what's going on because it affects your professional life rather profoundly. Although there's sort of a top-line number, no one yet knows what individual departments, agencies, or programs will actually get. From the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, John Hatton weighs in. John, there's more unknown than known at this point because a top-line number doesn't tell you what your program is going to get, fair to say.
2: Right from the employee perspective, from the agency perspective, there's still a, a lot of uncertainty. I think the agreement on top line numbers was generally good news uh, from agency operations perspective. It makes the threat of a shutdown less likely. Uh, there was some uncertainty over, you know, were these similar top line numbers or basically the same top line numbers that were agreed to through the Fiscal Responsibility Act which was passed to avoid uh, a default on the nation's debt, whether they were going to be honored with this new speaker and this new kind of house leadership. Um, And I think that question has at least been answered, um, but there's still a lot of questions left unanswered in this process. Like you mentioned, the specific allocations within the 12 appropriations bills, within those, the specifics of who's getting what. So that needs to be hammered out. And then there's other potential policy writers that need to be hammered out. And some people are, you know, on the House side, I've been talking about, you know, making sure there's something on border security. Is that one of those policy writers that's been tied up in negotiations over supplemental funding with Ukraine uh, or Middle East um, aid as well? So um, is that gets shifted over to government funding? Um, So there's. Many questions left unanswered, but I think the the overall the most recent news on that top line numbers means that they're moving in the right direction. I think the threat of a shutdown is much less, and you you still need to piece together the votes for this. And you know I think this new speaker has a little more leeway than McCarthy did uh, to put a bill on the floor that has you know a a mixture of Democratic and Republican votes. So that's that's good news, but you know we still don't know a lot about how that how the House is operating under this new leadership.
1: We do know the House has passed all of its 12 bills and the Senate has not. So there's some reconciliation that has to happen there, too, though, right?
2: Well, I don't think the House has passed every single one of those bills. Um, some of them they've tried to pass. So if they've, they've tried to get through um, some of those bills, they've failed to pass some of those bills because they didn't have the votes uh, in the House. And the Senate has passed a three-bill minibus um, and has other all the other bills out of committee. So I think they've gotten you know about as far as they can uh, on each side of the aisle. The House has at least tried to pass every bill. So they have something to work from but they have i mean less of a negotiating position on those bills that they did not pass uh the senate uh, could probably negotiate from those committee passed appropriations bills because those were done so on a bipartisan basis they'd probably have a slightly stronger hand if they were talking about the you know the full senate passed bills but i think they have enough details uh from which to negotiate but again they need to you know set that next level of kind of um subcommittee allocations uh, to move on, and to figure out some of these controversial uh, policy writers as well.
1: Right, that's right. They have moved 12 bills out of committee, and only seven have reached the floor vote. So yeah, there's yep. still some work to do. But it's they're ahead of the Senate, where they were anyway. So <laughs> there's sort of a shadow of regular order <laughs> happening.
2: It but, depends how you count it. I mean, I think the Senate is at least closer to what a final package would be, because it's been done on a bipartisan basis. I think, yeah, the Senate as a full body. Just operates so slowly that they have not passed all these bills, and there's been objections to bringing uh, some of these uh, bills to the floor because the House hasn't passed them yet. Like Ron Johnson has held up consideration of bills in the past because you know there's a traditional rule that the Senate follows that an appropriations bill originates in the House. So um, there's been a lot of politics around uh, you know the procedure in the Senate, which is tough for uh, even people who follow this closely to understand. <laughs>
1: And, of course, the Speaker, you know, has said that, well, he would not sign any more, he would not agree to any more short-term CRs while they figure out things. He didn't say that he wouldn't sign a long-term CR continuing resolution for the rest of the fiscal year, but that's not totally palatable to the Republican side because of sequestration?
2: Yeah. So under the Fiscal Responsibility Act, if they pass a full-year CR, uh, there will actually be a cut in defense spending uh, of 1%, uh, as opposed to what the agreement was, which was an increase of, I think, 3 or 4%. Uh, so, that's a major difference in overall defense spending that hawks on the Republican side would not be happy with, and, and certainly some on the Democratic side wouldn't be happy with either. Uh, it would also be a 1% reduction in the non-defense spending. So, there's an incentive to get appropriations bills done. Uh, the if Speaker Johnson's uh, commitment to no short-term CR holds, that puts a real time pressure uh, on getting these final bills done and does present the risk of a short-term shutdown. Um, But, you know, if they've made the decision, and I think it's indicative of this that they may have um, by the fact that they agreed to these top-line numbers, that they've made the decision to kind of negotiate with the Senate in good faith, um, I think that chance of a shutdown goes down.
1: I guess my other question is, you know, from the standpoint of NARF members, what's it like? What do you hear from members if, when they are just in this seemingly endless uncertainty period? The start of the fiscal year now is months ago. and there's Yeah,
2: no... it, it's not great just for the way agencies operate. Uh, the fact that we're already in January on a continuing resolution, uh, hampers planning for next year, if you're still talking about finishing up what the planning is for this current fiscal year, going into planning for the next fiscal year becomes even more difficult. Um, Every time you're getting closer to these deadlines for a shutdown, there's shutdown planning that distracts from your work. And so, you know, I think, you know, to the extent that something's a short-term shutdown, I think, you know, it's not disruptive if, you know, if it doesn't affect a certain, uh, an original paycheck, Um, then you're doing better as an employee. You're not as concerned about that. But from doing your work, doing your job, agency operations perspective, these things uh, continue to be problematic, Uh, both the threat of a shutdown, shutdowns themselves, and continuing resolutions uh, that hamper operations as well.
1: From what we've seen is people are reluctant to start new projects. They're reluctant to let big contracts go, especially services types of contracts where there's a continuing nature to it, even cloud computing contracts. And the yeah. longer this goes, the harder those things are to to just effectuate.
2: Yeah, that's true. And uh, again, it's without that certainty in terms of knowing how much money you have, you can't do those types of things in terms of um, you know entering in these new contracts or, or changing over. And you're really set in stone uh, rather than having that flexibility to move forward. And uh, and adjust uh, your actions to changing priorities and changing events.
1: And of course, the one bright note for federal employees is that as the advent of 2024 arrived, they knew they would be getting a 5.2% or 4.8 plus locality pay increase. And that's a pretty decent bump, you know, compared to yep. what people are getting in the rest of the economy. NARF is okay with that, I guess.
2: Yeah, we're supportive of that uh, for sure. Uh, you know, I think it's important to note that the the federal pay raise numbers tend to lag what's happening uh, in the normal economy because you're looking at basically almost two years ago changes in private sector wages and salaries. So some of the inflation you might have seen um, ending in September 2021. Uh, or 2022 is what's affecting the pay raise now. Uh, So looking ahead to 2025, we're looking at the change in in private sector pay and salaries that ended September 2023. That's the number that's based in statute that's used to develop the president's budget that then gets used to negotiate with Congress. So there's always this long lag in what the private sector was seeing to what the federal uh, workforce gets per the policy that they're that they're pushing forward, so it may look a little bit higher now that inflation is getting is coming down and wages seem wage inflation seems to be tempering uh, tempering a little bit, uh, but that's just because the kind of the planning process needed for uh, the budget processing in with the president and Congress.
1: And does Narf look at some of the topical issues? Something we've covered on the federal drive, and that is the taking away of retention pay levels for certain. Employees that work for the Bureau of Prisons, because well, you know, they're that has to be reviewed annually by the by the director. And at least two locations so far, they've had cuts. Comment on that. Not yeah, really- I mean,
2: I think you you can't just look to just the overarching across the board pay increases. I mean, the individual employees, whether it's in the Bureau of Prisons or elsewhere, uh, particularly when there's specific pay rates. Um, you know, if there's individual policies in those agencies affecting them, that's going to be much more relevant than that across-the-board pay increase. So, um, you know, we don't have a comment on that specific Bureau of Prisons situation, but um, it's it certainly going to affect the employee more than this overall number.
1: I mean, a pay cut is how it's being portrayed. In some sense, if you were getting X, and then for two years you got X times one point two five, and you're going back to X. You're back on the scale as everyone else, so in some ways it's a cut. In some ways, it's the end of extra, you know, which is not really a cut.
2: It depends (laughs) on your perspective in that case. And there was a you know similar situation with wild uh, wildland firefighters and uh, with with a fix that was included in the CR. So um, certainly the specific instances need to be addressed when it could result in uh, a loss of employees and or or, or reduced morale as well.
1: All right, and. While we have you, you know, this whole Schedule F seems to be an ongoing drumbeat, louder, softer, and there's an election coming up, and, you know, a return to the prior administration of Donald Trump is at least a possibility right now, the way it looks, and who knows what's going to really happen. But Schedule F was that gambit, and in the meantime, the Office of Personnel Management has a proposed rule on Schedule F, which for people that may be new to this, is a, a proposed category of senior federal service members that would be subject to much easier dismissal, which sounded like they could be political appointees in some sense in the way they could be fired. If there's a rule coming from OPM now, and there's a change in administration later, it sounds like an immovable object in an irresistible force. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So I I think the the rule by OPM is currently proposed. Hopefully they'll expedite and finalize the rule soon. That'll put in place, um, I think, harder to change procedures uh, and some due process protections by changing somebody from their current competitive service into the Schedule F, which would not have those due process protections uh, for hiring and firing the way the current merit system does. Um, you know, the, certainly the concern with Schedule F is that you're sh- you're using the statutory loophole to create uh, a new exception to the competitive service, where people are not hired based on their political affiliation or fired based on their political affiliation, but they're hired and fired based on merit system principles. And so uh, that never got a, that was um, put in place via an executive order at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, it never got fully implemented. Uh, early signals of the first steps in implementation showed that you know, 68 percent of the Office of Management budget was going to be reclassified into this, this category. Uh, it's gotten more attention uh, since then. Uh, Biden revoked that executive order. Now this OPM rule is trying to solidify some of these procedures to make it harder to then um, Institute schedule up in the future. Um, obviously, with the presidential election year uh, coming, it's not just Trump, but other candidates have expressed support for this. The Heritage Foundation has read, been uh, has been reported to be readying lists of twenty thousand to fifty thousand people to take over, uh, regardless of who may enter the White House uh, on the Republican side. So. Uh, You know, I don't view this as actually a conservative policy. It seems to expand the powers of government by having less checks uh, from Congress on uh, these being professional, nonpartisan employees versus partisan employees. Uh, This would be opposed by NARF uh, regardless of presidential administration on either side of the aisle. Um, So I think it's going to get more attention because it's a presidential election year and the outcome of the election may – determine whether this policy is put in place.
0: Well,
1: there's never a lack of things to think about. (laughs) John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. We'll take a short break. And when we return, an update on the troublesome issue of pay compression for those at the higher civil service ranks. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. interviews, news, and intel on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Federal News Network. Search Federal Drive. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. As federal employees open their first paychecks of the new year, most are glad for a somewhat bigger number. That's thanks to that 5.2 percent federal pay raise and locality adjustment for general schedule workers in 2024. But not everyone will get their full raise because of something called pay compression. I discussed this with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, compression sounds like squeezing, and squeezing and pay don't sound like great words that go together.
0: That's right, but that pretty much is what it is. The idea is that over time, as federal raises go up for the general schedule, but there's a bit of a pay cap for some of the most senior level federal employees on the general schedule. Uh, That's where you see them kind of hitting this pay ceiling over time. And depending on the the federal pay raise, the year it is and what those in this other pay system get, it varies year to year. But it is this phenomenon that just generally pushes your pay up against a barrier as you get higher up.
1: So does that mean it gets worse and worse each year, the compression, because those at the higher levels, especially political levels, their pay doesn't necessarily go up. And so people are getting closer and closer to that ceiling. Is that what compression basically is?
0: Somewhat. It's a little bit complicated to say that it just gets worse every single year because it really varies on a number of factors. So if you actually think about where the the pay compression comes from, it's because this most senior level ranks in, in the general schedule, and it depends on your location, so it won't affect everyone in the same way. But some of those at the, those, that very top part of the general schedule uh, are capped due to not being able to exceed by law level four of the executive schedule. And that number does go up year to year. It's based on the Employment Cost Index, or ECI. Generally, it will go up a little bit, but a lot of times it won't go up as much as the federal pay raise for the general schedule overall. And that's where you start to see that disparity. So for example, this year, 2024, we saw a 5.2% average pay raise for the general schedule. The executive schedule, that level four number went up about 4.5%, I believe it was. So. That's where you see that little bit of disparity, and there were actually several new steps and grades in a few different locality pay areas that were added to that pay compression range, I suppose, and and are now hitting the pay ceiling.
1: So who gets compressed, so to speak? Those that are close to that level four of the senior executive service, people highly ranked, but not quite at that level. They keep getting closer and closer to it, and they're moving faster than it's moving.
0: So it is essentially when someone who is on the GS pay system, but their pay, if it was going to have, the, for, for example, 5.2% raise, uh, and that would have put them above what the level four on the executive schedule gets, that's where you would see that cap. So. For this year, it is $191,900 is the executive schedule level four pay cap. So anyone on the general schedule whose pay by a 5.2% pay raise would have exceeded that. Their pay is going to be capped at that exact number.
1: Got it. And you did some looks close up at locality and how that affects all of this coming ahead. What did you find?
0: Generally, it's... Not really a huge surprise, those that are living in higher cost areas are the ones who are going to be most affected uh, by pay compression. That's because you know we have these now 58 different locality pay areas across the country, and depending on what uh, private sector workers make versus public sector, those in higher cost areas are going to have a little bit higher pay raises than the 5.2%. So, for example, in San Francisco, that's one of the uh, areas with the worst levels of pay compression. They have most of their GS-15s are, are above or hitting that pay ceiling, as well as now steps 9 and 10 at GS-14. Uh, so that's, that's where it is the worst.
1: I guess besides senior executives, who would like to fix pay compression and what are some of the solutions to actually fix it?
0: You do have the Biden administration saying in their budget proposal from fiscal 2024 that they are looking to address the issue. Uh, it has gotten worse in 2024 as well as in, in other recent years. The idea behind this, you know, some may say, okay, just because, you know, uh, because these people are at higher level pays, um, you know, why is it? such a big deal if you're making almost $200,000 in salary. Why is it? Why is pay compression a big deal? You have a lot of different stakeholders and groups saying that these people are managers and they should be kind of uh, rewarded for the work. And it's more a matter of principle rather than that, the actual salary that they do have.
1: Well, if you're at the senior executive level four anyway, and you're running a large multi-billion dollar program, $191,000, frankly, is actually not that much money. Uh, especially, you know, when you compare to what people that run, I mean, look at General Motors chief makes millions and millions and millions of dollars a year for a, you know, mediocre performing organization to be charitable. So I can see the argument there. Right.
0: And and to think about it in another way as well, federal employees who do hit that pay ceiling, then from there on are going to have smaller pay raises. And eventually when you have more people from uh, lower grades, lower steps, kind of reaching that same level then you can argue that there's years of experience difference between these two but they're getting the same pay for for different levels of experience.
1: Right, and by the same token you could work and gain experience and get better and better at something but the pay increases become smaller and smaller till you bump bump against a ceiling and then that's compression. So is there anything actually going on to try to fix it besides people admiring this horrible problem?
0: Well, as I mentioned, the the Biden administration is looking to try to address the problem. They said that they would have a legislative proposal on it. We haven't seen anything yet. I actually spoke to OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver the other day. He said they're continuing to work through those issues and hope to have more to share soon, but he didn't really give a solid timeline on it. Other than that, in Congress, there is a bill called the Pay Compression Relief Act. This was introduced by a group of House Democrats, and that would essentially try to address the problem uh, by allowing locality pay adjustments for GS employees who end up reaching that pay cap, which is part of the problem and, and why you see a lot of that pay compression in the first place. So
1: is it fair to say that pay compression is worse in the locality pay areas than in the areas of the country that don't have locality pay?
0: The rest of U.S. locality, or those who aren't in a locality, don't get impacted by pay compression. And not every locality does get impacted by pay compression. There's, I believe it's now 35 of the 58 locality pay areas who do have at least some federal employees who are being affected by it. That's about 60% of localities who have pay compression to some extent.
1: So it's really a surgical fix that's needed, not some grand scheme costing billions and affecting hundreds of thousands of federal employees.
0: I think what I'm going to be looking for is what the Biden administration puts out and see what their proposal is going to look like. That'll kind of tell what they're thinking. And if it's something that could be possible, we'll just have to see.
1: Well, it is annoying for people, I think, if you feel like you're getting more responsibility and getting better at your job and improving performance of your mission delivery, it'd be nice to have that reflected in your pay. And again, not many feds do this because they expect to be paid like General Motors, but they would like to at least be paid by what the government is best capable of.
0: Right. I think that that is a good point. And just one other note that I'll mention, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEBS this year showed that Fifty-seven percent—only fifty-seven percent—of federal employees were satisfied with their pay. So that is quite low. It's it's actually declined since I believe about four or five years ago. Uh, so that's definitely something to to keep in mind. And I think this is for a lot of senior executives in government a really big concern for them.
1: Federal News Network's pay and benefits reporter Drew Friedman, and that's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week with more information for your financial and professional life. I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.